You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. turning 30 next month, and I've been unsure how I felt about that. I've had countless conversations with guests that shared me how silly it was to think that they needed to, quote, quote, make something of themselves by 30. Yet here I am wondering if I've done enough to really make my 20-year-old self proud of how I've spent this last decade. That 20-year-old Justin had high expectations about where he was going to be at 30. But what I've learned over the last decade is that you can set your sights on something, but life has a whole lot of serendipity. And I don't know, that's kind of the fun of it, right? I mean, at 20, I would have never predicted podcasting would be such a significant aspect of my life. So here's for letting go of any expectations, being proud of everything that I've accomplished, and excited for what's to come in this new decade. So I'm done with my poetic monologue, but it does set up this conversation that I had with my friend Paul Angoni. Paul spent most of his 20s thinking he was a failure, working dead-end jobs to support his real dream of becoming a best-selling author. Paul grinded and hustled any moment he had, lunch breaks, late evenings, weekends, with the hope of creating something that sparked a fire. Sure enough, it eventually happened, although much longer than he expected. And Paul has gone on to author best-selling books, including The 101 Secrets for Your 20s, 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s, and 25 Lies 20-somethings Need to Stop Believing. His newest book, Listen to Your Day, The Life-Changing Practice of Paying Attention, is out today, and I highly recommend going to pick it up. It was such a fun read, along with all of his other 20-something focused books. Paul has spent so much time researching and understanding the unique struggles of being in your 20s. We get into a whole lot of conversation about these struggles, including finding your purpose, feeling like a failure, and when to make sacrifices versus when to move on. You're really going to like this episode, I promise you. We are really working towards trying to get a hundred Apple podcast reviews before our hundredth episode. So if you're a listener of the show, I would really appreciate it if you went over and left us a five-star rating right now. And if you're new, nothing for you to do. Welcome, sit back, relax, and let's learn something new. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the 20-something failure turned five-time author, Paul Angoni. So from someone who has road tripped from California to Austin in a soft top convertible <laughs> and stayed in a hostel just to attend a business conference, I'm guessing your, your wife and you were pretty scrappy 20-something entrepreneurs. So feel free to expand on that memory or different memory. But what is a memory from your 20s that really showcases oh, man. how you made a dollar stretch? Well, that is the paradox of your 20s, I feel like. And that's why I told that story in one of my books of that road trip to go to Texas where we couldn't afford plane tickets. We couldn't afford much. So we ended up driving down in my wife's Mazda Miata, like you said, and stayed in a hostel with just this ragtag group of <laughs> artisans. I mean, it felt like somebody had died in that room. 
before we got there because the mattress was on the floor and it was all cement walls. <laughs> uh, so you're hoping you weren't going to be the next person to perish in that same room. But then to put on a business suit and to go act like you're a professional at some business conference and network. And so I do feel like that was that accurate metaphor or paradox of what it feels like to be in your 20s. A little bit of the fake it before you make it, but more so just the you're trying to make it. You're trying to step into who you're hopefully becoming, but also you don't have the resources to officially make it work. And so, yeah, my wife and I, we have always been very scrappy to the point where, you know, when I went full-time on my own from a full-time career office job to full-time entrepreneur, writer, author, we even lived in a closet for one period of time to where our two kids were in one room. My wife's sister was in another room and it was a two-bedroom apartment. So there was a fairly large size closet in this master bedroom. And so that's where my wife and I slept. Wow. <laughs> so, so yeah, but you know, it's that idea of what are we really sacrificing? So we were sacrificing some space. We were sacrificing some luxuries, but we were gaining time and freedom of finances to really pursue what we wanted to pursue. So in my mind, it was a total, I didn't even see it as a sacrifice. It was just a great experience to make it possible to have more freedom of time and resources to really pursue what we wanted to pursue. Oh man, I want to ask so many follow-up questions to that, but I also <laughs> want to get into the interview so that we have some time here. So researching you has been a really cathartic process for me. Hmm. I'm turning 30 in May and I don't think I really allowed that to sit in just yet, mostly because I'm starting this new decade of my life and change is always scary. And I'm just not quite sure how I feel about being 30 yet. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I hadn't really given a lot of thought to the major themes and the learning lessons of my 20s until I started researching you. And then I found myself nodding a lot when I was reading your books, listening to your podcast interviews. I can tell you are someone that has spent a lot of time understanding what it really feels like to be in your 20s. So you helped me kind of rip the Band-Aid off. Mm. And this last week, I have been thinking a lot about my 20s now. So I think this conversation in particular is really going to be kicking off that process for me. And I'm going to use it as like, almost use you as a sounding board sure. to open up some of those thoughts. Yeah. And one of those thoughts that I thought you summed up so well that I've been having in my 20s is your 20s is for setting the table, not enjoying the feast. So what did you mean by that? Oh, yeah. You know, that I think why I can relate so well to life in your 20s and how to make it through your 20s is because I felt like such a failure in my 20s. It really was a tough decade of life for me that I went through a lot. And it really wrapped around this idea of why am I not experiencing success like I was supposed to? And I put supposed to in quotes because I would say this to myself a lot, maybe not even consciously, but subconsciously be thinking this all the time. Why am I not experiencing success like I was supposed to? Well, then it took a long time of realizing, you know, what is supposed to? What does the timeline look like on supposed to? And I feel like for our generation, you know, for Gen Z, millennials, whatever you want to call it, younger people who are striving for big dreams, big goals, who are optimistic, who want to go and make a difference in this world, I think that's an amazing thing. I think that's a great trait to have in a person. But what I realized, and then what I try to share with others, is that your big dreams and goals, that's not the problem. It's your timeline for how quickly you think you're going to find some fruit 
from that pursuit that becomes the problem. So then we get discouraged and we quit after six months or after a year of pursuing something because, gosh, I'm just not making the progress that I thought I was going to. Now, you might be making a lot of progress with those roots that are going deep into the ground that you don't see and they're anchoring you. But that's not sexy. You can't post a picture of roots on social media very easily unless you're a great artist or something. <laughs> um, but so that's where that quote comes from, you know, success really in our 20s. And I mean, let's be honest, our 30s too, in a lot of ways, is more about how are we setting the table than it is about enjoying the feast. Because one of the worst things that can happen, and this is what a one hit wonder is all about, is that the feast comes when there's no plates there, mm. when there's no silverware. All of a sudden, this feast is just thrown on this table, but there's nothing to hold it. There's nothing to contain it. You don't know what to do with it, and so you waste it. And that's really what a one-hit wonder is. The feast came too quickly. So I think for myself and for many others, it's learning to be okay with that process and also understanding that that is an important part of the process for you to do the good work that you want to do. Yeah. God, but that's such a challenge though, too. And I've learned that now exiting my twenties and starting to enter my thirties, I am starting to see a little bit of the fruit, which gives me just enough of a window and encouragement and excitement to continue moving forward on it. And I had so many things in my early twenties fizzle out because of that exact same moment. I didn't see anything progress in such a short timeline, even one year which is like an extraordinarily short timeline whenever you're trying to do something that is something that you feel like is aligned with your purpose. Like mm -hmm. You're a prime example for that too. You blogged and blogged and blogged and you took your lunch breaks. You didn't go out with coworkers. You stayed in and you blogged at your 30 minute lunch break and you put that out there and you put that out there. And I'm guessing like me too, you didn't see a whole lot of return on those early blogs until you had that one hit. And then all, as you mentioned, the silverware is already set. The plates are already there because you've had a catalog of things you've been working on. So once something did kind of finally ripen and give a little bit of traction, like people had more of Paul that they could go out and read. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I hear that, that age old quote of, uh, it takes about 10 years to create an overnight success. And I think that's definitely true. And that was the case for me. And it wasn't that I was an overnight success, but it really took my whole twenties of failure and of dead ends and obstacles and what am I doing and, and starting over and, and, and it's a whole long thing before my first book came out. And it really was what you described, Justin, at the beginning. It was kind of like my gift to my decade. It was like the culmination of everything I learned with nothing really going quite as I planned or hoped, which turned out to be the best plan or course of action that I could have ever taken. But my first book, 101 Secrets for Your 20s, it came out right when I was 29 turning 30. So that's when that first book came out that took about my whole 20s to see in my hands. But it was really through the failure and the learning and, and, and really reframing how I viewed progress, reframing what it meant to be successful, reframing all these things in my head, which then allowed me and freed me up to do better work because I was not worried so much about immediate outcomes as I had been maybe early on in my 20s or even in my mid-20s. Have you given any thought on helping someone identify when they are needing to just see it through a little bit longer versus when they might be running into a dead end and wasting their time going down this certain direction? Yeah, that's always the age-old question, right? You know, and I asked myself that question too of, and my wife asked me that question, you know, I was 29 or I'd been writing a long time 
and really not getting much traction. I'd been rejected by every publisher around. I lost my literary agent. I, I gave up that relationship just because I saw where the writing on the wall was going. So I'd seen a lot of that kind of dead ends. And so my wife asked me that question of when is enough enough? Like, when do you need to give up this dream? And I would say what really kept me going, and I mentioned this in my 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s book, is this question of who will you not be able to help if you give up now? And that was a real motivator for me because all the dreams of best-selling author, all the dreams of billboards and bestsellers lists or whatever it looked like, those had all gone away. And it was really this feeling of, you know, I know this is really important, what I'm talking about. And I would have publishers tell me, you know, why are you writing books to 20-somethings? They don't need books specifically for them. You know, there's young adult books and there's adult books. There's no market for what you're trying to do. And I kept telling them, no, this is a very unique stage of life. You know, it's what Mick Jay then called the defining decade, which then came out right as my 101 Secrets to Your 20s book came out. So there was a lot of even trying to convince publishers that this was a thing. So I kept asking myself, who will I not be able to help if I give up now? And I think for somebody who's pursuing something, if you get down to that base question and you want to keep going, you feel like you need to keep going, it's something that you cannot not do. You know, what's something you cannot not do? So again, all, all visions of accolades goes away, but it's just something that you have to continue well, I think that's your sign that you've really found something that you're truly, quote unquote, passionate about. And I think that's the best litmus test for passion is not through success, it's through failure. You know, fail at something repeatedly, embarrass yourself, fall flat in your face. And if you want to keep doing that thing, well, now you've found something you're passionate about. That makes sense. What about this concept of signature sauce? I heard you talk about this and bring this through, this concept through a couple of your books, actually. and. I mean, it seems like you've been thinking about this for at least five plus years. So yeah. what, what is that concept and, and how might th that be applicable in this situation? Yeah, I, I started visualizing, you know, this person, we ask all these big questions of, you know, what is my calling? What is my purpose? You know, what is my vocation? All these big, looming, overwhelming, ambiguous questions. And so for me, I started um, thinking about it through the metaphor of what is my signature sauce? So thinking about it like a, a master chef in a kitchen who's going through that process of creating a flavor that's truly unique to them that people are going to want, that the world needs. And so creating that flavor that is unique to their story, unique to their, you know, and I love watching even things like The Chef's Table. Uh, I don't know if, Justin, if you've seen The Chef's Table or... A little bit, yes. <laughs> there's so many chef kind of documentaries or shows. The <laughs> Chef's Table is great because it's sharing the story of these master chefs and how they went about the process. And almost every story involves this chef trying to become the chef they thought they were supposed to be, that, that everybody else is, you know, some French chef who's mastering <laughs> French cuisine, and then they fail miserably at that. And then they go through this desert experience to learn what is the, what is the flavor that I need to share, that I need to create. And usually it's based on their story, their strengths, their values. Everything is really in this food that they're creating. And I feel like it's the same for us as we're trying to find our calling, our purpose. You know, picturing yourself as that chef and you're bringing these different ingredients together and you're creating this flavor that only you can with your values, with your strengths, with your relationships that are in your life, with your story, and you're, and you're learning how to do that. 
And it's going to take time and it's going to take mistakes and things are going to go up in flames. You're going to create flavors that are not very good. And that's part, again, that part of that honing in process. And so that's why I created that kind of metaphor, that theme of finding your signature sauce. And I actually created, I ended up creating an online course called Signature Sauce because I, I wanted to go more in depth. Okay, what are the 10 ingredients? How do we uncover those in our lives? Because I feel like these are the important ingredients that goes into our, our, our purpose. Yeah, and your 20s should really be for exploring those different ingredients, for sure. The thing that I learned from 20 to 30 when it came to specifically my own career is I launched into my career in my 20s thinking that I needed to figure out my ideal career path and really narrow in on that while now looking at it and what I wish I would have entered into my 20s and my career as is just professional curiosity. Literally just being curious about the things that are out there because I didn't have a lot of exposure to all of the actual career opportunities that are like out in the world. College doesn't really do a great job of giving you a flyer on all the different possibilities and honestly getting you enough exposure to start practicing some of the skills and finding some of the things that you enjoy. So I routinely tell people like spend your 20s just trying some things out. And I think you summarize it pretty well. I think yours is getting lost with a purpose um, to an extent. And yeah, yeah. That idea of it, that all explorers have to get lost. Yes. But they get lost on purpose with purpose for a purpose. So it's not just wandering without any sense of what I'm doing or just exploring for no reason. Yeah, you, you're doing it with intentionality. And then you're also having people come alongside you. You know, the explorers that try to do it all by themselves, those are typically the ones that would perish on the trail versus the ones that had the guides, the mentors, the people with them. But you're right. It's, it's that feeling of how do I get lost with purpose on purpose for a purpose? Because that's really the definition. That's the first step to exploring. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it is this blend between curiosity, but some kind of intentionality behind your career. So you can launch into your 30s and have a good sense of what direction that you want to take. And once again, I think you could probably back me up on this. You're allowed to change your mind at any point in your life as well. And you probably will. I'll probably have two or three different careers, I'm guessing, you know, over the course of, of my own career. Well, we look at it so like, I mean, it's just, even the way we talk about it, you know, it's that age old question of what do you do? And it becomes that noun, that definer, that this is mm -hmm. what the label is that I got to have some answer. But even you, Justin, as you're doing a podcast, well, you're doing five things. You're, you're five different roles in a company right now. You know, yep. you're doing social media, you're doing content creation, you're doing the podcast recording. You're finding the guests and reaching out. You're the researcher. I mean, you're five different people. So you could tell somebody, what do you do just in the scope of this podcast? And you could say, well, I'm this, I'm this, I'm that. And I think that's what I've come to learn is not feeling like, well, I'm never going to be one thing. I'm not supposed to be one thing. I'm actually a collection of a lot of different things, even right now as an author, because I never thought even I could be an entrepreneur. You know, that word felt weird to me. I'm an, I'm an author. But then I had to realize, you know, know what, you, you are an entrepreneur. So you do have to claim or understand what that means because you really are doing that as well. So we are all these different things all at once. And we don't have to ever feel like, oh, I'm confined by, well, this is who I am as it relates to this one defining job. Especially now, I think it makes less and less sense. And it's just not even reasonable to say that because the people that really are going to get ahead are the ones that are mastering different skill sets and they're finding a unique, fun, cool way to bring these things together in a way that nobody else can. And those are the people that are really becoming 
the experts, the influencers, the creators, the businessmen and women, the teachers that are doing great work, that are, are, are allowing that curiosity, like you said, Justin, that exploration, and they're finding ways to bridge, again, those ingredients together in a flavor that's like, wow, I've, I've never tasted something like that before. Let me, what is that? Let me taste that again, you know? <laughs> I love that analogy. Can you talk about the story of the mayor of Starbucks? I haven't shared that one in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love this one. <laughs> yeah. So I was in a Starbucks one day. I was, I was wrestling with these questions, these ideas of, am I a failure? Feeling, feeling like a failure, writing, just grappling with all of that. It was a very busy Starbucks in Colorado. It was December. So it was the Christmas crowd. And this, th- this place was packed. I was watching this, this barista. He was making drinks. And, and it always amazes me when, they're, when you're making drinks. I could never do this. They're making drinks and they're talking to people and they're doing all these things all at once. I'm like, how do you multitask to that degree? I have no idea. But there's all these people that have their drinks and they're still waiting in that, that area where you pick up your drinks and it's this tight corner. And there's people piling up. And, and I'm like, why are these people, they have their drinks. When you get your drinks, you're supposed to exit the area. That's how it works in a normal coffee shop setting. <laughs> You know, and as you, be, as you become a writer, as you spend too much time in coffee shops, right? You're like a critic of all these different things. <laughs> I'm like, why aren't they leaving? And I realize they've gotten their drinks, but they're not leaving because they want their chance to talk to this barista. They're all waiting for their turn so that they can talk to him because he's asking them questions about their family, asking them questions about their job interview. He's asking them all these really intentional questions. And I'm starting to realize like this guy is like the mayor of Starbucks. And as he takes a break and he's walking around, I'm listening to people like, hey, come over here. You got to meet my friend. Or can you sit down here? Or can you introduce me to this other person? I want to date this person. So he's like the matchmaker of Starbucks too. <laughs> and so I started thinking, you know, what is this guy's story? You know, who is this guy? And I, I started picturing his backstory, you know, writing it in my head, you know, that maybe, you know, he was a real estate guy and he kind of lost it all uh, during one of the crashes. So he had to start over. And maybe he had to move back in with his parents in the basement, you know, because that's a very like 20, 30 something thing to do, uh, especially nowadays. Yeah. And, you know, and, and maybe just working at Starbucks was just a job he had to get. And then I saw him limping a little bit. And I was like, Andy has one leg. You know, <laughs> he's got one leg. He lost it all. He's working at Starbucks, but he's the mayor of Starbucks and he's doing this amazing job and everybody loves him. And then that's when in the book or when I'm telling the story now in person or a speaking engagement, I tell everybody, you know, I'm kind of lying when I say I don't know the mayor of Starbucks or I'm just making up the story in my head because the mayor of Starbucks is actually my brother. Mm. And I just never had seen him working at Starbucks yet. Mm. And so all those things were true. He, he had lost his job, lost things during a real estate crash. He'd moved back in with my parents. He was born without a leg. So my whole life, I've known him with a half a leg missing. And so I, I know for him in particular, it's very hard for him to be on his feet all day to get up at four in the morning. You know, that's not easy for him as it is somebody that has two legs. So the fact that I was watching him and that he was doing such an amazing job and he was making such an impact in his space, you know, for me, it was this eye opener and, and, a, and a gut check and a conviction of, you know, I need to stop worrying about getting the wrong job. You know, Mm -hmm. I got to stop worrying about, I got to find the right job. I got to get the right job, the right career. I got to find the right thing because then I'll do a good job. No, it was this realization of, you know, I need to, I need to do a good job. Even if I feel like I'm in the wrong job, you know, that doesn't really matter. That's irrelevant. And actually I will only get better jobs 
by doing a good job in that space. You know, that's the only way to progress. And I think a lot of us get stuck in this, if only kind of mentality of, if only I could get that position, if only I could get the book deal, if only I could get the relationship, well, then I'll be better. And then I'll actually be creative or I'll work hard or all these things. It's like, no, that's really a lie that we tell ourselves. You can do that good work where you sit. And that's actually really important for you to then progress. And so I, I often say, you know, crappy jobs are a 20 something rite of passage. If you do a crappy job at your crappy job, well, then crappy jobs are going to be your 30 something rite of passage too. And your 40 something, it's never really going to stop. So you have to bring your best self to whatever job you're working. So that's what the mayor of Starbucks, aka my brother, taught me on that day. <sighs> so good. And I like that story in particular because in your 20s, I mean, you are building a skill set. You probably have a small Rolodex of contacts and there are so many things that you can't control, but there are also a whole lot of things that you can control. And the people that I have found most successful in their 20s going into their 30s were the people that took a lot of responsibility and authority with their controllables. Mm -hmm. And the hard work aspect of it, remembering people's orders, knowing that they were going for a job interview last week. Those are some of the small things I feel like that you can, you can bring and, and have some kind of intentionality with the job that you have. Exactly. That's well put. One thing that I heard you say that really summed up a lot for me was that 20-somethings are scared to be insignificant. And I think that probably is the I don't know, if you were to ask enough whys behind some kind of scarcity or something that they're scared of, being thought as insignificant is probably going to be the root or the very bottom of it. Mm -hmm. But I like that you also mentioned that failure is a huge part of finding your significance as well. Mm -hmm. So if you want to avoid insignificance, you have to confront and probably embrace failure. Um, to some part as well. And maybe we can talk a little bit about your story. And I know we dropped a little bit in earlier, but once again, blogger, spending his lunch breaks, saying no to colleagues Mm -hmm. so that he could write his blog. One blog hits, your website goes down. You, I I love that you're like, I didn't even know a website could like go down. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time too, you're this like struggling author and you say, AK, I'm self-employed and trying to write on the side here. Mm. And that took eight, nine, 10 years in the making as well. And then you signed the book deal, this thing that you were looking forward to so much. But when like, you actually look at like what monetarily that looked like, it wasn't like this like significant change in your life either. So Mm -hmm. I I thought it was like this like funny crescendo of this whole story. You got what you wanted and then you're like, well, shit, (laughs) I got to start writing more now. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And and even getting to that book deal, like you said, you know, I had the one blogger called hit 21 signature twenties, which then it, it took everything, you know, blew it up. It was that tipping point moment, that spark, you know, and I think a lot of your twenties is bringing the fodder. It's bringing the kindling. You're just gathering kindling all the time, just gathering the kindling. And then you're hoping one day for the spark, but mm, again, well if the, the spark happens, but there's no kindling there. It goes back to the same metaphors we've been talking about. Well, then there's nothing to catch, you know, the good kind of fire. Uh, the fire that brings warmth and food, you know, that, that kind of fire. And that was my case when that blog article hit. I had a lot of kindling there because I'd been failing and writing and finding different ways and getting creative. 
And really, as I look at my job now, again, as we're looking at, you know, really, I see my career as an entrepreneur or as an author. It's, it's this wheel with different spokes that are in the wheel that are turning my career, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, it's as a speaker, a keynote speaker. It's as an author, an entrepreneur um, doing these different things. As a blogger, as social media, marketing, creative design, you know, designing graphics, doing video editing, all this stuff. I would have never learned any of this if I would have gained and reaped the success that I was crying out for in my mid-20s. I would not have 90% of the skills that I utilize now on a daily basis if I was the best-selling author that I was hoping to be right away. Meaning you... You're actually somewhat glad that it took you that amount of time so that you had some runway to learn these skills. So whenever you got that platform, it wasn't just a one hit wonder. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if that first book would have came out, you know, right away, and if it had been very successful, one, from a character perspective, I don't think I would have been able to handle the weight of success. And that, that's a problematic too. You know, we talk about skills a lot, but from a character perspective, you know, most people that really flame out or really experience like stark failure, or everything falls apart. It's not typically a skill set problem. It's typically a character problem. And the weight of success can be very heavy. And so for one, I think I would have been crushed in that regard. And then two, yeah, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had to learn many of the skill sets I have because I wouldn't have wanted to. I, if I was ushered in success right away, I wouldn't have been grinding every lunch break to learn how to write a better blog. I would have hired somebody to do that. You know, just let me hire all this team so they can do all these skills for me. No, I really, I was forced. It's like, Mm. if you're still going to try this, Paul, then you have to learn this. You have to learn how to do basic HTML coding, you know, whatever, whatever it was that I would have never done if I was successful right away. So yeah, as I look back, I'm very thankful for that journey because it's brought a whole a litany of skills that I would have never had and made me, I think, a better communicator, a much better communicator in the long run. And then also, you know, half of my first book were blogs that I wrote that then became my first book. And so really, I was writing my book all along through these blogs. I just didn't really realize it. And so I was actually getting to that place of a successful book, but through a different path that I didn't realize. I mean, when I was in my early 20s, mid 20s, there's no way I would have given you that, this answer. Yeah. I was just crying out to God, you know, saying, please, <laughs> Lord, please help. You know, I can't go on, like, give me hope. And there's a lot of those moments, don't get me wrong. And I talk about those too, like just what I call warring for hope, where I just go up and hike above the Hollywood sign in LA because that's where I lived at the time. And I'm just warring for hope, like, give me hope to experience another day because I just feel like nothing is going to work out like I hoped it would. So there's a lot of those moments, but I am very thankful now as I look back. That was the exact path I needed to be on so that when moments of success have come, it's been sustainable and I've been able to grow it instead of being crushed by it in any capacity. Yeah, that, that hits home so well with me just with early stages of the podcast and like, is anyone listening right now? Like, is, is this worth it? And you're always questioning that. And e- even like your, your story with, thinking your email was broken at one point in time too. And like emailing a buddy and being like, did you get this? Because you reached out to so many publishers out there and, and you thought, surely all of them are not replying to me. I, I felt that and still feel that on an occasion as well. But what the podcast has helped me with personally as well is this whole overcoming 
embarrassment. Like you, like I, I remember the first 10 episodes that I dropped. It's like, you're refreshing the page all the time, seeing if anyone tuned in, like waiting by your phone to see if anyone texts you about the episode that you dropped today. And like, life doesn't change. Like people go on with their own lives. And mm. as disempowering as that is, I think that is also somewhat empowering as well that there won't be a whole lot of this overwhelming embarrassment if you do put something out there that isn't extraordinary. And the entire premise of this journey is that you need to start putting things out there so you can one day create something that's extraordinary. So this thing you talk about with like the possibility of greatness and embarrassment is in the same space, like really hits home with me. Mm. And then maybe we can drive it home with another story that you tell too about the failing musician. I think you talked about it in your 25 Lies book, but there was this failing musician mm-hmm. and a heavy rock band as yeah. well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a great story. I'll, I'll start with that. This musician who was in a, a heavy metal band and he just loved heavy metal and they get a record deal in their mid-20s. And so he's excited. He's stoked. He thinks they've arrived. They've made it. The cover of their album is like them with like in a meat locker with like these big hunking carcasses of meat. I mean, they were trying to be very hardcore with the the long like 80s <laughs> heavy metal hair. So the album comes out, they're excited. And then the album completely flops, doesn't go anywhere, is, is a complete commercial disaster. And so that really sends this guy reeling to, and into a deep depression. And I think we all can relate to that. I can relate to that, especially when you see something come to fruition. And again, it's like that, oh, yes, it's happening. Oh, wait, it's still a failure. How is this possible? And so, so I mean, it's, it almost became a very tragic story. And I write about this in the book that he tried to commit suicide because so much of his identity was, I think, was tied into the weight of this outcome and the perceived success or failure of it. But he really felt like he'd missed his chance, like he was done, like he was a has-been in his mid-20s. Thankfully, his, his suicide attempt is not successful. And so he goes out into kind of like a, an exile. Again, a desert experience. So this feeling of losing everything and then having to go out and reinvent yourself, so to speak. So he goes all the way to LA from the East Coast and he starts playing in these dive piano bars, playing the piano again, which is how he learned music in the first place. He wasn't a heavy metal musician at age 10, right? He learned, <laughs> he learned piano and that's how he learned music. And so he's learning and he's enjoying and he's getting back to his love, really, of playing the piano in these dive bars, in this exile, where nobody knows where he's at, where he feels like he's lost everything. And that's when he creates his first song called The Piano Man, Mm. which is that song of him being in that bar and and them saying, you know, Bill, what are you doing here? Why are you here in this bar? And, uh, you know, if you guys know music history at this point, you know I'm talking about Billy Joel, who's sold more albums than... Bruce Springsteen and Michael Jackson and Madonna. I mean, he's one of the best-selling artists of all time. And we almost didn't know who Billy Joel was because Billy Joel thought he had failed and was done as a heavy metal musician, which was true. He did fail at it as a heavy metal musician because that wasn't his signature sauce. He was in that process of creating that flavor that only Billy Joel could do behind a piano. And so he had to go through those rounds of failure to get that and, and embarrass himself. So that's why I say that, you know, the possibility for greatness and embarrassment both exist in the same space. You have to be willing to embarrass yourself if you're going to be willing to do or want to do anything great. Yeah. And to round out the Billy Joel conversation too, you can't judge yourself based on your success or failure in this next year or two. You can only judge yourself on your failure and success over your entire lifetime. And you'll never know that until 
life is over. Yeah. So therefore it's probably not worth thinking that hard about. <laughs> we are so, I think that's such a, and I, I keep coming back to this all the time. We're so quick to label an outcome a success or failure. And we're so obsessed with the outcome, you know, especially in our culture. And we're just so outcome-based in what was the outcome, what was the results, what was the ROI, all these terms. But you're right. You know, so many things that I look back on, and that was a thread that we spoke to earlier, is that things that I thought were a failure that I was embarrassed by, well, those ended up being some of my greatest successes long-term. And then the things I was like super excited about, oh, this is a huge success. This is going to change everything, change my life. Well, a lot of those didn't turn out to be anything, really. It was just a blip and then it went away. And I think I write about in, a, in that 25 Lies book as well, another musician searching for Sugar Man. Have you ever seen that documentary, Justin? Uh, I don't think so. For anybody that's a creative or anybody that's trying to do work, really, you got to watch this documentary. It won Best Documentary in, I believe, 2013, Searching for Sugar Man. It is the best story of not knowing the impact you're having not knowing where your work is going or what's going on, thinking you're a failure and not realizing the success you really are. And so I won't tell the whole story about searching for Sugar Man, but it's basically this, this guy who's another musician, another flop of an album who doesn't realize the impact he's having in South Africa and that he's one of the most best-selling, he's, better, he's more famous than the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, is Sixto Rodriguez in South Africa. Mm. So it's this amazing story about that. But yeah, we get that idea of success and failure so wrong. And so I think we just got to remove some of those, those definitions, those labels from our you know, dictionary. We, we don't really even need to put that on anything. We really, yeah. like you said, I, I think they can only be looked at through the lens of eternity. Like not even our lifetime, not even like however long this world is here, yeah. that's how long this can go. Because you have no idea the dominoes and ripples and the things that happen that you helped set in motion through that one thing that you thought was a complete failure that changed the world. And, and you really have no idea. Very well said. So as we are concluding the conversation, I want to spend a little bit of time on this practice that you talk about in your new book, which is Listen to Your Day, which is coming out in April. So by this time, it's already out. Go check it out. But you talk entirely in the book about this practice of paying attention and by actually listening to the details of the day, what that can actually tell you. And I think that's kind of my last question here is I'm, I'm hearing a lot of things. I'm reassured about the failure and I've committed to put the time in, but now I'm still like, I don't know what the thing is. Like, what am I investing into? Like what I don't know if I know what my purpose is or, you know, where I should be pointed right now. And I think you do a really good job of giving some actual tangible instruction in, in your newest book by listening to the details of the day. So can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, the, the, you know, the book is Listen to Your Day and the subtitle is A Life-Changing Practice of Paying Attention. And I don't know about you, Justin, but for myself and a lot, I mean, every book I write is really for me you know, it's something I'm struggling with. It's something I'm going through. It's something I'm honestly wrestling with. And I'm trying to find answers to. So that's why I become passionate about that topic. And for me, it's just that overwhelming feeling of I'm not paying attention to my life. And I'm living so distracted. And really, I'm losing the battle for my own attention. Like it's being stolen from me. And really not even stolen. Like I've opened the door and I'm, I'm letting people come in and taking my attention. You know, I've let them come in. I shouldn't really complain. 
because I'm willingly letting them do it. And by that, I mean, you know, it could be a lot of times it's the phone, social media, whatever device, whatever distraction that we're using to really get through the day. So if I'm living my, my day every day, needing some distraction, needing almost in a sense a medication to get through this so I'm not paying attention, I'm not having to think about my life. Well, gosh, what does that say about myself? And what does that say about the progress I want to make in my life? So really, I mean, I believe that every day we are given tons of answers to some of our biggest life questions, questions about relationships, career, faith, purpose, motivation. We're giving these answers every day. We just don't recognize them as such. You know, most of us are unintentionally blind. You know, and there's a lot of studies, and I talk about that in the book, different studies as we kind of understand the mind better, that we don't actually see most of what comes in front of us every day because other attention-demanding tasks are in place, so our focus is elsewhere. So really, it's a new way of paying attention so that we can frame our attention and focus on the things that are important to us. And so we have to figure out what are those questions? What are those goals? What do I want to direct my attention towards so that I'm going through each day intentionally directing my awareness so that I can, I can not just manifest answers necessarily coming to me, but I can actually just see the answers that are there all the time, all the clarity and revelation and breakthrough moments that are happening to me. I just am not recognizing them as such. So it's really a, a framework and a guide that changes the way we live every day that we're not looking for, oh, sometime tomorrow in the future, if only type moments. It's like, no, we're getting all of this now. We just have to recognize it and then write it down and do something with that. You said you write the books more times than not because it's the book that you need at the current moment. So by applying the principle, paying attention, what was something that you realized was important or meaningful in your own life? Well, really, I mean, and, and honestly, it's, it's even my craft as a writer, as an author, you know, that's really what I do as an author. You know, and I think that's what a lot of different professions do is this heightened awareness that I'm paying attention throughout my day and I'm writing down notes pertaining to my book, whatever book it might be. I'm constantly writing down, again, creating the fodder, again, bringing the, the kindling together. And that's how I start each book. So I'm actually doing most of my writing when I'm not writing. I'm not just sitting down in a blank piece of paper and, oh man, what am I going to write? What am I going to do? It's like, no, I'm, I'm living it as a writer. Mm -hmm. It's not just a, an act of sitting on a computer. It's, it's a lifestyle. And I think that's true for a, whatever profession you, you're doing. It's, again, a new way that you'll, you'll see things differently because you're focused on different questions and problems that excite you. So you're going to be looking for those answers, those revelations. You're going to be reframing your, uh, your attention to do that. So for me, I think it was also being more aware of not letting my go-to knee-jerk reaction be, let me distract myself. I feel uncomfortable. There's too much silence. There's too much waiting going on here at the supermarket or at this elevator or whatever. Let me jump on my phone. It's kind of the new cigarette. You know, when, let me yeah. take a cigarette break. Now, it's, now let me take a phone break because I can do it even when I'm with hundreds of people. I can do it in the meeting. You know, like people don't know you're secretly looking at your phone under the table because we feel uncomfortable. So I've become better, especially since I've been writing this book and really focused on this, at stopping myself, 
saying, do I need to jump on the phone right now? Stopping myself from turning on the radio, whatever it is, and, and, and at least being intentional about, okay, I want to focus here. I want to pay attention. I want to be intentional about this time. And maybe I need to meet somebody here. Maybe there's an idea waiting for me. Maybe I, need, I just need to be more engaged in my day. And I can't do that if I'm constantly filling my, my head and space with noise. Now, that doesn't mean you can't listen to great podcasts like this, or you can't read great books like Listen to Your Day, but it's at least being intentional about what are we allowing to come in so we're not just having our attention directed everywhere else, but where we hope is the most important places. Yeah, not killing those awkward moments and creating some not-so-chance encounters. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, you know, and I detail those in other books, you know, these moments of being on an airplane and choosing not to listen to music, choosing not to be on my computer, and just allowing myself to be open to the opportunity of the space that I am. And, as, and it, is, it really is wild, you know, the chances, the odds that you are in line with somebody at a store, that you are sitting next to somebody on an airplane. You know, the odds are just insane that you're there in this history, this moment in time that you're sitting next to this person. And so I've had a lot of those moments where I've had huge breakthroughs in my life. And so I call them not so chance encounters because, you know, I feel like it's a lot of times it's very strategic. It's something that is set up that there's no way you could have orchestrated on your own. And now you're there, you know, and I'm there with somebody who is a you know, manager in LA and, you know, we start working on a sitcom and all this stuff because I was open to that moment to pay attention to, okay, what is happening here? You know, and I come from a background where, you know, my faith is very important to me. So I, my belief in God. So for me, it's directing, you know, what is God directing me towards? What do I need to be aware of to hear his voice, to see what he's doing and actively engaged in my life? Because maybe he's answering a prayer for me right now. But if I'm completely distracted from it, then I won't see it. And so it's, again, that active engagement in that way. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Like I said, you ripped off a Band-Aid for me and, and, and really started this process of allowing myself and being really excited to move into my 30s. So thank you for that. Of course, Listen to Your Day is out now. So you can go and pick up your copy probably anywhere books are sold. But if I wanted to learn more about Paul Angoni, you get you write a lot of 20-something books out there as well. And, and I picked up and started reading a couple of them already. Do you have a good one or two good spots that you can direct people to to, to learn a little bit more about what you got going on? Yeah, it's, uh, my main website is allgrownup.com. But it's grown like you're groaning in pain, G-R-O-A-N, allgrownup.com. So you can check out that site. And I have hundreds and hundreds of articles. All that fodder, all that kindling is there on that website. So there's tons of free content. And you can pick up free chapters from all my books at All Grown Up too. You can get a kind of a taste test of whatever book you might be interested in. So All Grown Up's a great place. And then you can follow me at Paul Angoni on Instagram, A-N-G-O-N-E. It's a good it's Italian a name. My, my <laughs> middle name's Tony, so I could be Tony Angoni oh. if I wanted to be a true Italian, but I've, I've stuck to Paul. But yeah, so you can follow me at Paul Angoni and feel free to reach out and send me a message or if something encouraged you in this episode or through a book. I always love and I take every, every email, every message I get, I always take time because it's just such a gift to communicate with people in that way. Paul, final question for you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors, on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Well, that's kind of a no-brainer for me in a way. I would teach the signature sauce course because it's already mm. a course I've created. 
because that was my whole goal. Is a ten, it was a 10-week course, but I could make it 16, <laughs> uh, of going through each ingredient that I feel like is so crucial to your makeup, to your flavor. That's not just based on a skill set or just what you're good at from your, your strengths perspective, but it also ties in your values. And, I, and I'll have people rank, you know, what are your top five, what I call soul values? And most people think, well, I know my values. I know what's important to me, but it's like, no, what is really like number one? When you're, when you're in a crossroad, I need to make a decision. What value is guiding you? What value are you falling back on that is helping you make that decision? And so it's this holistic view, really, of purpose, holistic view of calling and vocation that involves our whole selves. And then also the relationships that we're in as well, because again, those aren't just by mistake. So that's, that's the course I would teach. I'd probably do it in person if I could, you know, maybe once a week, probably going to some different spots. If I could do it all in the mountains, I would go on hikes, get out, get in silence, get in nature, because that is so good for your brain. That's so good for that clarity, those aha moments that happen when you're walking in nature, hiking, because your brain is freed and you're relaxed. So I'd probably do that. I'd probably start it with a hike, go up to some spot in the mountains and we do class up there and we do that once a week. That would be my dream course. Mm. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Angoni, best-selling author of plenty of books that are out there. We can list them all in the show notes if you're interested. Paul, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Justin. It's been an honor. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning into that episode. I'm so glad fate brought me to Paul at this critical time, as I mentioned, turning 30 here in a couple of months and been, I don't know, resisting that change until I started consuming some of Paul. And now I'm really excited about it. And I'm starting to recognize and realize some of the lessons that I am learning in my 20s. Once again, Paul Angoni, his new book, Listen to Your Day. You can check it out. Find it anywhere that you find books. Thanks again for tuning into this conversation. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website, and those messages go straight into my inbox, and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all, and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together. Mm-hmm.